we work with many organizations who are fairly sophisticated in their own right. So they've done a lot of interesting work around building winning business models and developing their tactics on retention, acquisition. And what we therefore need to do is to really help them move the needle and tackle ambitious, complex challenges and opportunities Hello and welcome back to Media Voices, the weekly podcast with all the news and views from the world of media. I'm Peter Houston. I'm Esther Thorpe. And that clip you just heard was from this week's interview with Tara Lajamoka, Managing Director of FT Strategies, which is the Financial Times' new consulting firm, which it launched a few years ago to support other publishers with their subscription strategies. So we discussed how FT Strategies fits into the FT's wider goals, what her role involves as MD, and how publishers' subscription strategies are holding up after the pandemic. You'll have noticed that it's just me and Esther, no Chris. Chris is at a wedding in November. Yeah. His second wedding in like two weeks. So lots of people trying to make up for lost time and all the time that we spent in lockdown not being at weddings. Uh, we've just released a special conversations episode looking at the Great Privacy Reset. We spoke with insiders Jana Merrin, Futures Nicholas Flood and Permutives Joe Root. It's a detailed look at the conflict between advertising and privacy and how publishers can take advantage of the changes in the legislation which is coming and the changes that the platforms are bringing about themselves. So give that a listen. But first... Our main story. Spotify has introduced paid podcast subscriptions on a global scale. This is actually quite cool. It is cool. Okay, I'll let you see why it's cool first. So actually, I'll explain what it is first. Um, so yeah, Spotify launched podcast subscriptions in the US um, a couple of months ago. And it's, well, you say gone global, it's launched into 33 markets, which is um, not, not bad. Um And yeah, the idea is um, if you're releasing episodes through Spotify or Anchor or a number of partners they've got, you can mark episodes as subscriber only, Um, which this isn't the first, they're not the first platform to do this. Apple actually did this um, over the summer in a massive botch launch. (laughs) Um, But uh, Spotify actually working on overcoming a lot of the issues Apple have got with it, like the fact that in Apple, you can only release it through Apple's platforms. Spotify trying to sort of do this big push to make it open um open to listen to on any platform and, and things like that i'm quite excited for this go on why did that well botch it what did they do wrong uh well they just they really botched the technical side of it so there were suddenly loads of publishers or, or loads of podcast people that had problems getting any new episodes in um they've currently got a really complicated back-end system where if you want to the workflow for releasing a paid podcast is is still quite buggy and quite complicated uh, mm-hmm. there's been lots and lots of complaints about it whereas spotify is sort of bug tested before they've released it apparently well, yeah so they had it out in the us right and they had it out yeah. there first where as of august they had like a hundred podcasts that were on a subscription some level of subscription mm. um and then they listened to those people and made some changes so instead of just three price points they now support 20 price points 
<laughs> the scale on this is nuts. It's like yeah. so forty nine cents is the low end, and then it goes to a hundred and fifty dollars. I mean, if you've got the balls to charge one hundred and fifty dollars for a podcast episode, fair play. Do you think that's one hundred and fifty for an episode? That'd be one hundred fifty a month, won't it? I don't know. I don't, I don't know. know. It's weird that one. I, I I suppose if you're a sort of you know high end financial business publication, but I, I I don't. You can subscribe to the information for like three hundred dollars a year. Get a mm. discount, and it'll be two hundred. Yeah. Mm. And they've also um, introduced something where creators can actually download subscriber details. Oof. Kicking Apple's ass. Yeah, a- Apple are sort of retaining that. They're saying, no, 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 we're not going to release that to you. But actually, it's one of those things, if you've, Spotify said, well, we recognize you need to be able to build that relationship with people who are paying for your content. So we'll let you, we'll let you have that data, which is generous <laughs> of them by comparison to Apple. Well, generous by comparison, but normal. Talking of generous by comparison. <laughs> Yeah. So Apple takes 30% in year one. And then I think they drop it to 15% in year two. What's Spotify taking? Uh, nothing for the next two years. And then they're Fair taking 5%. I mean, this is the thing, you, you, can, you can take what you want as long as you're beating your competitors. Yeah, well, you've got to wonder what, is Spotify just trying to beat Apple in this? Is, it, is, this, a, is this a play for market share rather than... I think this is a bit of a recognition from Spotify that paid podcasts are still so, so new. Uh, we don't really know how audiences are going to respond. So they're saying, mm. I, I, I almost think they've probably lowered that wall to give the incentive to experiment a bit with it. Yeah. Um, and they're then, once things are established, once we know where the market's going, once we know how willing people are to pay, they'll then sort of, you know, we'll be a couple of years down the line and Spotify will then say, right, this is our, our kind of cap level. Yeah. Um, I just took on an Audible trial, <laughs> which I've not done for years and years and years um but i took it on because of the finding q podcast the only way i could get access to it was actually to sign up for audible so i think if you've got the quality and it's unique enough and that podcast is brilliant you know it's it's really really good then i think paid podcasts can actually be a thing but it's always going to come down to quality it's always going to be a bit of content um, the other thing Spotify are working on was something called open access technology. Um, a very generic name for what they're trying to do. Um, but yeah, so they it's it's this recognition that the the issue with paid podcasts has always been that you end up having to wall it off from open RSS feeds, which is what podcasting runs off. Um, so they're working on that with a number of partners like Supporting Cast, Acast, Supercast, not Casts, uh, Memberful, and uh, they're hoping to roll it out next year, which is um, a technology that, that will allow existing subscriptions platforms to sort of allow podcast publishers to publish in one place out in rss feeds like other po- mm. podcasts do um apple are not partaking in that <laughs> so, oh, get away. Um, so it'll be again it'll be everywhere but apple so do you think apple's going to change though because I, i'm asking this for a very specific reason they just made this announcement about home repairs Mm. that you can actually buy parts and do your own repairs on Apple's later models phones. And that's a big shift for them. So if you extrapolate to this kind of thing, then you got to wonder if they're going to, you know, eventually can they not support that walled garden? Please discuss. I mean, I think they, they, they see their future in the service revenue, don't they? So they're going to be even more reluctant to bring those walls down. Um, I, th- I just think it's interesting that the more Spotify pushes to be open, um, yes, I, yeah, I know they've got all their exclusive podcasts, but they're trying to push their technology to be more open. 
Apple are becoming more and more insular, and I don't know how that play in the long term. I think if, if Apple were better at their technology and treated this more seriously, I think it would work. But the, their rollout of the um, paid podcast was was appalling. I think it's the same old story with Apple. They, there's businesses that we as consumers think are really, really important. But when you look at it from Apple's point of view, it's just not a lot of money. Is this something publishers should be thinking about, paid podcasts? Yeah, definitely. But um, Empire did it, didn't they? Mm. Well, um, Immediate are doing it as well. They started with some of their brands. Did they do something with History Extra? Uh, not History Extra. They've got um, Gardener's World. They've actually got an Alan Titchmarsh series that is um, through hey. Apple's, Apple's subscriptions. But see, again, you know, whether it's celebrity or whether it's just proper, you know, serious content like that that finding q podcast it's it's unique it's about being unique that's what people will pay for mm. so yeah if you've got an audience that that loves you and it you know it comes back to that idea that, that percentage of the audience that will buy anything that you want to sell them you know that thousand true fans or whatever it is um then yeah will you get rich from it probably not um you know there was a slide that thomas bickdale shared that last week or the week before and i think it was buzzsprout anyway it was one of the networks was sharing the numbers on uh downloads for the top one percent five percent ten percent of podcasts and the top one percent in the first week was getting four thousand downloads the five the next five percent was getting 700 downloads and it just drops off a cliff after that Honoured to be a top 5% podcast, Peter. Honoured. <laughs> and, you know, from a subscription point of view, so, so top 5%, 700 lessons or 700 downloads, even if every one of those people subscribed at 9.99, which is the kind of price point for everything, isn't it? Um, depending on what you set up and your staff costs and everything else, you're not going to get rich on that. But that's, see, that's quite an expensive price point for a podcast. I know, I thought Empire found that, didn't they? They um, they pitched theirs at £5. And... Yeah, I think they ended up at 2 So, yeah, there's the point. 700 people, which is everyone, at 2 Nice extras, but it's not a major revenue stream. Well, given we were talking last week about the fact that people preferred free content and would happily give philanthropically, <laughs> this is a very contrasting news story. So we'll be coming back to this one. If Chris was here, he'd be setting a Google alert for uh, <laughs> for six months from now to see how Spotify subscription podcasts are going. And now for the news in brief, Axios Local is getting an expansion already. Um, the, the scheme is not yet a year old, but they've already announced plans to expand their city-based network of local newsletters. Um, they're adding 11 new locations, bringing the total number of cities to 25. I think they're expanding a lot faster than we expected, aren't they? Yeah. They, they, they had said, I think they said they wanted 14 mm. by, I, don't know, I think it was the end of this year, they were going to have 14, and that's them talking about 25. But that's just the start of it. They know they're talking about um a hundred cities. Uh this guy, the the guy speaking with I think this is TechCrunch's stories. Let's see if interviewed this guy from from Axios. He has the best name ever. He's called Fabrizio Drummond. Wow. He's a chief financial officer. That is just the best name. I think that's the best name we've had in the podcast for ages. Uh, anyway, Fabrizio said, we've mapped out 100 markets and cities where we think this product can have a meaningful impact for local readers. 
Um, so yeah, they're getting aggressive. I think. Yeah, the um, the figures that that article cited is that they have more than five hundred thousand subscribers already, and five million dollars in revenue. Um, yeah. I think they're, they're targeting double that next year. So I mean, it's this idea that um, you know you can basically have two reporters per city, yeah. and if you've got all the kind of business operations and everything else centralized within Axios HQ, you can actually ha- run quite a lean, quite a smart operation. And I've, like people online have been really, really complimentary about the newsletter so far. So how come this works for them? D- these guys have got two reporters on a daily newsletter. Works, everyone's happy. Their open rates are what up to 50%, almost as good as ours. <laughs> um, and, and it works. And then you look at what's going on in local newspapers in the UK, and it's just a shit show. Honestly, I think that that's to do with the difference between newsletters and websites is that in the UK, it's the websites and you're incentivizing traffic to the websites, which can be from anywhere, from anything. You know, you're looking at kind of ad rates then. Whereas if you've got a newsletter and it's open rates, you have to be relevant and you have to be good and on it every single day. Um, And if, you know, if you start reporting on, um, (laughs) you know, trying to find all the local angles on a Woolworth reopening, you're going to lose those subscribers really, really quickly. And I think it's that difference between building an audience and trying to attract an audience every single day to a website. And it's just one one makes sense for this and the other doesn't. Another argument for newsletters. Whoop, whoop. Uh, okay, I knew I was going to get to just talk about this story eventually, even if you didn't let me talk about it in the newsletter. Magazine covers, baby. <laughs> the Columbia Journalism Review has got a piece in talking about, do we still, or asking the question, do we still care about magazine covers? Of course we do. Um, because they're really, really cool. And apparently our readers do as well, because it's the most clicked article that day. Oh, yeah. <laughs> I think the, the real point of this article is that it's looking at magazine covers in the context of the collapse of newsstand sales. I think they're talking specifically in New York, but the magazines that they're talking about, 95% um, of the sales are print or digital subs. So newsstand is just non-existent. Uh, and they're asking the question, do magazine covers matter in that context? Obviously, they mattered so much. I was reading this, and I was surprised they actually didn't draw on this idea of memes and, and the image-based culture yeah. that a lot of social networking has now. Because yeah. um, I think, like, the last four years, the number of co- – like, and people have been mocking up covers as well as artwork. The number of covers of Trump that, were, that almost became memes in themselves that were so powerful yeah. – um, you know, I, I, don't, I don't think I ever saw a single actual print magazine with a cover of that, but I saw – online you know facebook twitter all these brilliant brilliant pieces of artwork i've actually bought magazines because i saw the covers online i've gone out and bought them and the, the time trump covers were brilliant remember the ones where he was melting onto the floor yeah. and the, the ones with the storm and stormsy yeah, and all some fantastic storm, it wasn't stormsy was it <laughs> stormy stormsy is a totally different human being um, but I can remember talking to um, Deborah Joseph at Glamour a couple of years ago for the podcast, um, and they they've been digital only for about a year, and they said they still release monthly covers yeah. because of the response on social and because it got people excited for kind of what was coming that month. Um, it got the you know they'll, they'll often still have a feature piece with a, an influencer, and it got the influencer really excited. Um, as you were saying, the, the digital you know they, they they'd even produce sort of series of digital only covers um, because. Yeah, the Instagram generation loved them. Yeah, I think that's the point. It's about attention. It's getting attention. 
It's also about being part of the gang. You know, you share. The way you used to carry a magazine around and people saw you carrying it or you left it on your coffee table and people saw you were reading it and you were really cool because you had a cool magazine. Now people are sharing it. So it's still about being part of the gang. The most interesting line in this is from Times Creative Director D.W. Payne. He's been there for over 20 years. He's done 750 Time covers. I mean, not not necessarily. He's led 750 covers. He has a, actually has a team of 12 people working on him. Um, but he says his approach to cover now is more like as a journalistic poster. Which I thought mm. was exactly, you know, that idea that, you know, here we are, readers, this is what's going on. Yeah, anyway, covers, magazine covers are brilliant. We love them. Yes, we still care. Columbia Journalism Review, we still care because they get attention and they're cool. The end. This week's guest is Tara Lajamoka, MD of FT Strategies. I started by asking her what the consulting firm has been focused on in the two years since its launch. First thing is building a robust playbook. We work with many organizations who are fairly sophisticated in their own right. So they've done a lot of interesting work around building winning business models um, and developing their tactics on retention, acquisition, and what we therefore need to do is to really help them move the needle and tackle ambitious, complex challenges and opportunities. And to do that, we have built a really exciting set of strategies and a methodology to help them cross this next phase of their journey which for many of the clients that we work with is around building resilient business models that can certainly not only survive the current crisis, but quite frankly, you know, thrive through it and beyond, but also about building long lasting, valuable relationships with your audiences, valuable for their audiences, in ways that allows them to get exciting and insightful content and products, um, but also valuable for the business as well in terms of hitting really ambitious targets, whether it's around subscription growth or profits. So we've really invested a lot of time and energy into distilling all of the lessons from the FT's own journey, but also from the increasing number of publishers that we've been working with into a robust playbook, but also a very powerful methodology. The other exciting thing we've been doing is scaling the team, uh, which has been a really interesting challenge, given that we've had to do a lot of that in the middle of the pandemic. You've got quite a wide variety of, of job roles on there now, haven't you? Yes, we have. You're a really exciting um, and talented team. So, yes, we've got, you know, everything from ex-journalists to uh, startup founders to experts in fields such as data, marketing, um, products, customer research, 
And the exciting part of our, our, our hybrid model is that we also get to work with talented FT subject matter experts. So we've got the best of both worlds is what our clients say, the, you know, rigor and the, the consulting toolkit that you would expect from a world-class consulting firm, but also the very pragmatic and operational perspective from our FT colleagues. I know when it first started, um, a lot of the talk around the, the FT strategies was that it was aimed at publishers who had subscription businesses to help them sort of level that up. Has that expanded beyond that now? Do, do you sort of take publishers with any sorts of problems on board or is it still very much still subscription publishers? Um, I, I would say it's expanded, but we are still very much focused on a specific set of challenges. Um, we're not trying to be everything to everyone. Um, we have a deep set of skills and experience around recurring revenue models. So whether that be subscriptions or memberships, um, donations, communities, and so on. Um, loyalty um, and optimizing for customer lifetime value is another area. Culture change, transforming your organization in terms of its behaviors and, and processes like workflows into one that is centered around the customer, the reader, is also another space that we know a lot about. Um, so I'd say it's still very much focused on customer-related, direct-to-consumer, if you will, related work. Um, subscriptions represent a huge part of the work that we do. But we're also starting to do exciting work along the lines that I mentioned in and outside of publishing. So predominantly working in the news publishing space, but increasingly looking to do more exciting work along those lines in wider media um, and further afield like finance and so on. Um, and the FT, it, it's generally sort of held up as one of the most successful publishers when it comes to things like subscriptions and paywalls. So what's the thinking behind this? This sounds like a really cynical question, but what's the thinking behind making this knowledge available to others? Because presumably competitors will benefit from this as well. It's an interesting question. We believe that a rising tide lifts all boats. Mm. Um and that actually having more and more organizations, for example, talking about the value of reader revenue models, then we all benefit, ourselves included. Um, you know, for a long time, the FT and maybe the likes of the New York Times um, and maybe even other sectors like Netflix, etc., where, for lack of a better phrase, the subscription evangelist, right, preaching the gospel of reader revenue models and the need to diversify from traditional revenue lines like advertising. And it's actually quite a, it's quite a challenging task to do that, right? Because there is a big mindset shift for many industries um, that are, you know, either not used to sort of paying for this type of valuable content. Um, so actually, we think that there's a there's a more philosophical mission here for us, which is how can we protect valuable content? And that obviously extends to other types of propositions. Um, and how can we actually, in a way, draw the end user closer to 
the manufacturer, if you will, um, and reduce the number of middle entities um, that, you know, sometimes add value, sometimes don't. Mm. But it's also a, a greater, I think, opportunity for organizations by virtue of getting closer to the end user to create even more innovative and more exciting products and services because you understand them better, you are able to reflect that knowledge into what you offer, when and how. So, so I guess there's a philosophical benefit, um, but also there's a commercial opportunity for us as well, right? You know, I think one yeah. of the things that I admire about the FT is it is constantly reimagining and reinventing itself. Um, and I think that, you know, this, this is no credit to me whatsoever, but um, the, the leadership at the time saw a huge opportunity from all of the investment that they had made in, in data, in digital, in products, in marketing and so on, and to monetize that and offer that to a new set of customers in a way that actually doesn't affect, um, negatively affect the business. So, so yes, you know, we may be offering this to people who may see themselves as competitors, but actually we think if anything, we are growing the potential pie, the potential universe for everyone. Um, and also we are generating a new source of, of revenue for the business, which again, feeds into our ethos of building a diverse and resilient portfolio of revenue lines for the institution that is the FT to thrive. Yeah, I was gonna ask about that. Does the FT strategies work quite closely with the rest of the FT business or is it, have they sort of tried to wall it off a little bit? Yeah, so there, there are two parts to the answer. Um, one is yes. Um, so we will partner with subject matter experts and there's a very strict process that we go through to make sure that we are working with the right people and they are only exposed to critical information on a need to know basis and not any sort of sensitive data because for us client confidentiality is paramount um, and clients absolutely love that, right? They love the fact that, you know, for example, if we are doing a piece of work which requires newsroom engagement, right? As we know, editorial is a very special, very unique place. And having people from the newsroom um, or from editorial who are able to engage with our clients' own, you know, equivalent roles um, is just so powerful. They can speak the same language they get the stuff that matters, which, you know, when you have a set of strategic recommendations on a page, as you would typically expect from consultancies, um, is, is, is critical, right? It goes beyond the theory, for lack of a better phrase, to the, the important nuance of politics and complexity of change and cultures and, and so on. So having those people who can empathize, who've been through a similar process, who live in the world that they do is, is really powerful and helps us deliver even more realistic solutions, more pragmatic advice. But then the other part to that is, as I said, client confidentiality is um, important. So we have very strict policies in place, which means that, you know, we don't disclose, you know, some of our client names, except they've given us consent to, 
Um, we have, you know, data Chinese walls where only certain people within our FT strategies team even are able to access that information because, you know, we want to ensure that everything we get from our clients is treated with the utmost levels of confidentiality. And in your experience, I suppose, how are publishers faring 18 months on from the pandemic in terms of, well, I think things especially like subscriber retention, given that that's, that's a speciality area. Yeah, it's it's a very interesting time for most of the publishers that we speak to. As you said, there is the the COVID flood of subscriptions where we saw a huge uptick in acquisition. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, the sort of news agenda was was ripe and very um it was high demand, right? Um, with, you know, Trump and COVID and everything else that was happening. Um, and now we're starting to see an uptick in churn rates. Um, so after those, you know, COVID-driven large audience numbers, um, sustaining that growth has been a real challenge. Um, and there's also, you know, other exacerbating factors like economic pressure from from certain geographies as well, which is now leading to more and more people canceling subscriptions. And, you know, you can see that manifesting in generous discount packages and, and you know, trial periods, for example, um, by many publishers to try and compensate for that. Um, so it, it's a really challenging time is the headline. Um, and we are starting to see, which I think is a good thing for the the consumer, we're starting to see really interesting attempts at retaining um, audiences um, beyond the classic, you know, price-led discount and so on. So really deepening your understanding of who your user is, why they subscribe to you in the first place, what they're consuming and how, what types of things might keep them um, for longer and drive engagement. And I think for us, that's, that's the key factor. It's, it's not just about holding on to people for us. It's about building a relationship with people. One that is built on a deep appreciation for the, the content that you offer and then deploying a set of intelligent tactics to encourage loyalty, um, and use, which is this, you know, virtuous cycle that hopefully then leads to, to retention. Yeah. I know people talk a lot about, um, they spoke a lot about this pre-pandemic, this sort of idea of subscriber fatigue, that eventually you're going to get to the stage consumers can't pay for absolutely everything they're being asked to. Do do you see that happening or has the pandemic sort of shifted that little bit in terms of people are actually quite happy to pay for content now? I think it depends on who the the segments, the person is, right? Um, I think there's always going to be a certain extent or degree, I should say, of, of flyby traffic. Um, however, I do think that there is an increasing appreciation for quality content. So uh, the short answer is yes, I, I do think people are happy. Most people are happy to pay for news that they trust, that they believe is accurate and reliable. Um, and that's across you know, many levels, whether it's you know, personally, when people are trying to understand the implications of COVID and, and the vaccination rollout program, you know, there's, a, there's a personal 
implication, right, to having access to timely, accurate information, or it's professionally, you know, people who are obviously trying to progress professionally or trying to explore new options, etc. Um, having access again to information that can help them enhance your knowledge, help them come across as smart and and wise, etc. helps them professionally. So, so I think people have hopefully been exposed to a greater array of high quality journalism um, and have had a taste for it and hopefully want to continue to have access to that, right? So I think there's a there's an increased recognition that great news costs money. <laughs> great journalism, quality journalism mm. isn't isn't free. Um so yeah, so I'm hopeful that with a combination of that appreciation and that that demand, um, but also more intelligence insights on the part of publishers around how to engage their audience and hold on to their audience, that we we see more and more thriving examples of publishers um, across the world. Um, on a day-to-day basis, what does your role actually look like heading up that, that team of consultants? Oh, goodness. Um, I want to say chaotic, <laughs> incredibly exciting and fulfilling would be the headline. Um, so I guess uh, my main priority is making sure that my team is empowered to deliver sustainable impacts for our clients. So what that looks like is a making sure that I actually have the right team in place or spending a lot of time trying to find great talent, um, which is always a, has been a challenge for us. We haven't been able to grow the team as quickly as we have grown the work because we are very selective and we will not compromise on getting the right person and um, because obviously that that's our proposition right it's you know brilliant experienced people who who are passionate about solving really ambitious challenges um for our our clients our partners so a lot of time recruiting speaking to people um, a lot of time with clients as well, um, not as much time as I'd like. So speaking to, to potential clients, existing clients around, you know, problems from, you know, earlier this week, we were talking about what content to, to lock behind the paywall, how much of the content. Um, and then uh, last week, we were talking, I was talking with a bunch of clients around, you know, how to think about launching a new subscriptions model for a new segment and how to reach new segments beyond the sort of core customer base they have so more females and and younger younger readers um so yeah so clients i find our conversations always be very intellectually stimulating um and i guess a lot of conversations with partners as well really just trying to stay close to the ecosystem to understand what's happening across the board, you know, innovative models that are launching, interesting tactics that are being deployed, what customers are saying, so interesting trends, and then a whole set of other random things in between, like finance (laughs) um, and so on. 
I suppose what's on the horizon for FT strategies? I think especially in terms of, is this going where the FT pictured it was when it set it up? Yeah, I like to think it is. Yes, um, I, I think it is. We've um, been outperforming on almost every KPI that we set ourselves, whether it's revenue um, or team size um, or impacts, which for me is is my proudest achievement, um, seeing the the results that we are delivering with the clients that we've been working with. So yes, I think it's going it's going really well. Um, I think what's next is scaling. We really want to scale the business so we can scale the impact that we're having. And um, so deliver even more sustainable value for more people, more organizations across the world. We've done most of our work to date in Europe. Um, we've done, you know, we've worked with a few global organizations. So we sort of have exposure to almost every region globally. However, I think we could do a lot more in other regions um, and other, other sectors as well. So yes, so I'd say scaling to new regions um, and sectors would be one of the, the key themes for 2022 and beyond. And we ask all our guests what the last thing is you read or saw that really affected you? I would say a YouTube video of Maria Ressa um, of the Philippines, and I'm sure I'm not pronouncing her name correctly, um, who obviously won the 2021 Nobel Peace Prize. Um, I Obviously, we all saw the headlines, right? So I kind of saw and I thought, oh, great, great day for journalism and you know, the fact that she represents so much, whether it's from a diversity lens, journalistic lens, um, innovative business model lens. But until I actually watched her interview, I didn't fully appreciate the challenges that she had to overcome. You know, she was facing so much political backlash (coughs) and censoring and very, very... um, very bold attempts at, quite frankly, bringing her and her organization down. Mm-hmm. And the amount of resilience that she demonstrated, and not just her, but also her team, which is obviously a reflection of her amazing leadership rights. And I think she said something along the lines of, there was a time when c- couldn't really afford to pay people or, or at least pay people properly. Um, and they had to then eventually pivot to to other revenue models because you know advertising was being attacked again and so on but it was just such an inspiring story of leadership and an example of the many battles that many journalists around the world face on a day-to-day basis and quite frankly we don't really hear a lot about um i also sit on the board of the bureau of investigative journalism um and for me it really brought to life what many of the journalists, you know, in that organization go through as well. So it's not a question of, you know, distance, part of the world, it's happening, you know, even here in the UK. So yes, it was a, it was a very, very stark reminder of the importance of what journalists and quite frankly, the media industry does every single day. 
um, and the mission that I think everyone is so inspired by and a reminder to us as well in our very small, humble way of the little role that we may be playing to preserve that for societies and democracies across the world. So we haven't got a podcast subscription yet, you never know, but you can pay us regularly to support the work that we do on Media Voices via our Ko-fi page. Go to voices.media slash support. You can make a one-off donation or you can make a regular monthly contribution. Thank you so much. And our launch event for Media Moments 2021 is coming up quickly. It's actually next week on Wednesday, the 1st of December. Oh my God. <laughs> uh, you can sign up for that at voices.media. Uh, we've got some great panellists lined up for the event. We've got Brian Morrissey, ex-Digiday CEO and rebooting founder. And we've got Charlotte Tobit, who is the uh, UK editor for Press Gazette. And we've got Lucy Kung, who is working with the Reuters Institute and Google on some really, really interesting research. I'm really, really looking forward to those, having those three on the panel. Um, we might actually have to shut up for once. I was going to say the big thing about having three people on is that we get to just be quiet for a change and listen, which is nice, I think. Um, publish podcast awards entries are still open uh, till the 10th of December get your entries in now please and until next week when we'll be back with another fantastic guest see you then and Chris and Chris <laughs> <laughs> <laughs>